Good morning, Andrew and Gillian. Thank you for joining me on this Jurisdiction podcast, when I'm bringing together my wonderful colleagues from Edinburgh and Belfast, um, and my good self representing England and Wales to talk about jurisdiction in the context of litigation for our clients, and a little bit about how that unwraps for us and how we all work together as a team, um, because I think it's quite unique as an offering that we have such a strong relationship, particularly with our corporate clients, where we work together very closely to ensure that we look after their legal needs across those three jurisdictions, being England and Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. Um, so it's very lovely to have you here today in the London office. Thank you very much for travelling down. We're going to um, start with some sort of introductions and a bit about us really and what brought us into the law. I'm going to start with Andrew Foyle from our Edinburgh office um, and your background. I think you're a Dumfries boy, aren't you, Andrew? I grew up in Dumfries. I was born in Ireland. I lived there for, for a number of years before I moved across. And uh, yeah, grew up and was was educated in Dumfries. Uh, I was almost an Essex boy though, because really? we, we were almost going to move to Essex. That would have been a very that was a sliding doors moment. <laughs> well, you're within sound of the um, Bow Bells yeah, here, that's right, yeah. and apparently that makes you a true Londoner if you are born within the sound of really? Bow Bells. Yeah, so, so grew, grew up in Dumfries, went to school there, and, and it's quite uh, a famous place, Dumfries. I think you've got some interesting international characters, Robert the Bruce. Robert the Bruce was there. Yeah. He, uh, he passed through on his way. And then you have Henry Duncan, um, who set up the first commercial savings bank he did in the world. And I understand you. there's a museum of banking. There's a museum of banking, which is uh, just outside Dumfries. Brilliant. And, uh, yeah, it's, um, I don't know how well visited it is, but it's, uh, it's certainly there. And then uh, you've also got Robert Burns, of course, which he failed to mention, but he's the did I mention Scotland's oh, national I bard. I missed that one. Sorry. Yes. He did most of his work there. Was the excise man in Dumfries, and um, oh, he's, be, he's, he's buried there. Oh, very good. Very, very popular place, isn't it? Hmm. So, Gillian, Northern <laughs> Ireland, you're a Lisbon girl. Well, originally from a small village called Moira, which is about eight miles outside Lisbon, but unfortunately, I think Andrew has outdone me in terms of the interesting people who come from either Moira or Lisbon. Can't think of quite so many. So, yeah, first 11 years in a place called Moira, a small village, and then moved to Lisbon, which is where I went to school, um, and then followed on, trained and um, worked in Belfast. So I went to university in Queen's University, trained in Belfast as well, but in between spent a year living in Chester doing my LPC. So it was a nice little change to get away from Northern Ireland for a bit. But I think, yeah, I can't be Andrew in terms of famous people that come from Moira or Lisbon, but I do also have a pub that um, my husband runs. And um, we did have Orlando Bloom come in as a as a patron at one point. So I think that maybe competes oh, a little bit. With... Well, you'll notice all my famous <laughs> people were several hundred years ago. <laughs> yeah, I definitely can't beat you on that one. <laughs> I wasn't even there when he oh, arrived. That was the worst part. I didn't get to see him. <laughs> what, a, what a shame. Um, I'm a home counties girl, so I was brought up in Newbury. But for many years of my um, younger life, I spent um, time growing up in South Africa and Botswana, and that was quite um, formative for me as an individual in terms of that flexibility and resilience you get from um, international emigration. Some great life lessons learned over there. So fantastic place to, to grow up. And better weather. Absolutely. Yeah, that's why I've got all these freckles. <laughs> <laughs> Too much sun damage. I didn't use Factor 50 when I was a child. <laughs> Some olive oil if you're lucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a bit of foil just to intensify the, um, the heat experience. 
So we're going to have a, um, a sort of little chat about getting to know us. And um, one question I have here for you, um, starting with Gillian, is a, a book recommendation, if I may. Hmm. Tough. I mean, I, I like to read a lot, mostly at the moment at nighttime on my app, either Kindle or the library app. So I pretty much read anything I can find, but I like mystery or thriller books. So I think one that I read recently that I really liked was The Paris Apartment by Lucy Foley. So good recommendation. And also because I'm sitting beside Andrew today, I think one of the best books I read in the last year was one called Shuggy Bane um, by an author called Douglas Stewart. So it's in relation to um, a boy growing up in Glasgow in the 1980s, a very underprivileged life. So I'd recommend that to everyone if, if you want a bit of a challenging read. So very interesting. Wow. Follow that, Andrew. <laughs> I'm not sure I can. I've heard, I've heard great things about, uh, about Shuggy Bane. Um, but I haven't read it yet, so I need to do no, that. No, not me. Yeah. yeah. Summer read. Absolutely. My trouble is I read so many books that actually it's difficult to, to pick one. But uh, the last one that I did, which I just finished last night, was called The Partisan, which is a good spy novel if you're uh, interested in that kind of thing. Bit of a thriller. It takes you from kind of 1940s to 60s and back again. And uh, yeah, it's, that's, it was very good. So I'd highly recommend that. I've just finished um, the Wisting series, which is a Nordic noir um, following a, a, a Norwegian uh, crime detective. Um, that just takes you to another place. Um, and that's what I love about reading, is it really gets you mm. just away from the everyday, doesn't it? Mm. Um, I think as lawyers, we're quite curious individuals by nature, aren't we? So I think reading is a, a good outlet for that. Mm -hmm. um, it takes us off into different areas to expand, uh, expand our minds. Mm -hmm. um, Absolutely. So what's your morning routine? How do you get started in the day? We've got a dog now. <laughs> so we get up at about quarter to six in the morning, take the dog out, then sit down, have a cup of tea for about half an hour and then start to kind of get myself woken up and ready to face the day. Depends on if I'm working from home, I'll be at my desk by about eight-ish. If I'm in the office, I'll be a bit later than that. But yeah, it starts with dog walk and cup of tea are the two constants. Very sensible. I think I'm one of those annoying morning people. So either I think you're a nighttime person or a morning person. I'm one of those people who's literally before my alarm goes off, I tend to open my eyes and I'm just wide awake straight away. So I think like Andrea, I've got a couple of dogs. If I'm working from home, I'll walk the dogs potentially. But other than that, I like an early morning Peloton ride. I got a Peloton during lockdown when all the gyms were closed and couldn't do anything else. So definitely, I can't say I commit to it every day if I'm driving into the office, but if I'm working from home, Definitely get up, get in the peloton for half an hour, and then it makes you feel like you've achieved something before you start work. But yeah, I'm quite bad. I don't really tend to have breakfast or even a cup of tea before I start and then stop at some point during the morning to do that. What about you, Paula? Oh, I think I'm terrible in terms of um, exercise in the morning or at any stage, really. I'm very much a, you know, roll out of bed and just try and get the coffee in as quickly as possible to um, get myself awake. Um, but um, I think I used to be a morning person, but as I've aged, I think I'm definitely becoming more of a more of a nighttime person. What, what I can say is having thought I would get used to getting up at quarter to six in the morning to walk the dog, <laughs> I really haven't. <laughs> and uh, I'm definitely not a morning person. I'm not sure I'm an evening person. I'm not sure what sort of person I am. I'm not... <laughs> Middle of the day person. Middle of the day person. Maybe when I nap. <laughs> So let's talk about law and what took us into being lawyers. I think we, we spoke earlier about family influences and, and teaching influences and other considerations. Gillian, what, what made you want to become a lawyer? I think for me, honestly, I'm not sure what made me actually decide I wanted to be a lawyer. I mean, I, I remember deciding when I was around 10 years old, for some reason, that I was going to be a solicitor. I don't think I really knew what it was. 
what it entailed or what you had to do to become a lawyer. But I decided that and I can remember my grandmother saying to me it would be quite a difficult career route to get into and, and achieve and get a training contract. And obviously we all know now it's even more difficult than when we were qualifying. But I seemed to make that decision then and then just carry on down that route. I think for me, though, a lot of lawyers are probably more into their perhaps English literature type route beforehand in terms of what they studied. I was quite a maths person in school, so I did maths, economics um, and history for A-levels. But I think for me in terms of litigation, the fact that we do a lot of financial services litigation and work for our clients that involves sometimes quite complicated calculations and forensics reports, I think having that maths background has actually really helped me. Yeah, I can't quite say why I decided, but I know I decided early on and then carried on with that route. And I kind of fell into it, really. I'm actually a, com a frustrated computer scientist, <laughs> uh, which will come as a surprise to anybody who's seen me try and work an iPhone. But um, that was that was what I originally planned to do at, at university. I got the grades to get into law. My sister had done law. I kind of roughly knew what it was about. And my family were encouraging me to go down that road. So that's what I did. I don't think I ever intended to be an actual lawyer, but here I am. So my original plan was to work for the Foreign Office, but it's very hard to get a position with the Foreign Office and to serve as a, you know, in the di diplomatic service abroad. I thought that'd be a fantastic job because mm. you get posted all over the place. Mm. And with my childhood, you know, being in Africa, I thought that'd be a wonderful thing to do. Um, but it was really going through teenage years and um, mentored by various teachers and the sort of curiosity that um, drives me, them saying, well, I think you'd actually benefit from a career in the law, have a look at it. Um, and that's how it all started. And I ended up at the university um, in Southampton, which is not very far away from where I currently live. So I fairly stayed fairly local. And I think we're all fairly similar, aren't we, in terms of we haven't mm. ventured too far from our universities where we now currently work. No, about a mile for me, probably. <laughs> so. <laughs> Absolutely. You're a bit further because Glasgow, well, Edinburgh, you know. We don't talk about We that. don't talk about that. <laughs> Although I did, go, I, I did my diploma at Edinburgh University, so that was... Yes. Yes, and the LLM at Dublin as well. I did an LLM in Dublin, yes. Yeah, yeah the first year they ran the LLM course there. It was, yeah. uh, Have you got anything against England and Wales? <laughs> they wouldn't let me in. <laughs> what would you say is a common myth about our profession? Well, I think you mentioned this earlier, actually, Julian, about yeah. the, uh, the fact that there's a kind of perception of us, firstly, all being rich, driving Ferraris and all the rest of it, vroom, which, vroom. Um, yeah. which would be great if that were the case. But, when do I pick up my keys? Uh, well, exactly. But I think certainly litigation, which is what we all do, there's a perception that it's all very formulaic when actually every case is completely different. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I really Even enjoy... Even the smallest cases. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I really enjoy about it is every case has to be looked at in a different way and yes. there's a lot of problem solving involved and, and things like that. So I think there's probably a perception that we just kind of fill out forms and they go in and it's it's all the same, but actually that's not really the case. No, and I think a lot of people get their perception of lawyers perhaps from watching some of the glamorous US shows like Suits. So I think some people think we spend our whole days striding through court in groups, marching up to the judge and just achieving a result within two minutes of starting the case. Whereas um, perhaps a lot of people then don't realise or see the months and sometimes years of hard work that goes into one particular case just to reach that end result and get that goal for the clients. I think perhaps it's definitely not as glamorous as, as a lot of people may think. I've never once been able to use the phrase, you can't handle the truth. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, why not? Well. <laughs> I almost, there was one point when it would have been appropriate, and I thought, I can't say that. Can't say that. <laughs> At least you just have, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, you got into the podcast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're in, you're in. Good. <laughs> um, so let's talk about litigation. We're three litigators here. We've got quite a few years of experience under our belts. 
What do clients struggle with most in the litigation process? I think perhaps the uncertainty in a number of different areas. So uncertainty sometimes in terms of outcome, predicting the response from the defendants, the duration of the litigation potentially. It, it's something I think going into it as a individual or company that potentially has never handled, dealt with a litigation case before in their lives, who maybe isn't used to the process. It can be quite daunting, I think, in terms of the unknown. And whilst we can guide as much as possible and explain the various different possibilities, timescales, etc., there is always that big element of unknown in terms of any litigation. Yeah, I think one of the skills of a litigator is seeing a case from two sides. So we, we, we know what our client's position is, but we've got to try and predict what's going to come from the other side and what they're going to say in response. And trying to get that across to clients can be challenging sometimes because you can be very you know, one track mind in terms of looking at the case from your side and not fully understanding that there's there's a wider picture. I think most clients with discussion, we, we uh, you know, we, we can uh, explain that. Um, but uh, it's it, it's one of the challenges of the job, I think, is just having to see things from all sides and mm. give the best advice we can in those circumstances. We spend a lot of our time managing risk. I yeah, think, don't we? And the other side throwing um, a curveball that we weren't expecting, um, or the client wasn't expecting um, from how they presented the case to us um, when it first came across mm. to our desks. And as you said, Gillian, there are no guarantees um, yeah. in the courtroom. And even the best prepared case can fail if a point is taken that is, you know, we can't hold when the evidence is challenged before the judge. Absolutely. And I think one jurisdictional point, so in Northern Ireland, um, we tend to still deal with evidence in chief. So most trials do not deal with witness statement evidence beforehand. So it means prior to going to a trial, you genuinely do not know what the other side's evidence is going to be. So it means that you can have the best case in the world and you can plan as much as possible and you anticipate based on the evidence that has been provided what will be said. But you will still always have that complete unknown of not knowing what evidence is going to be provided by the other side in terms of oral evidence on the day. So I think that's something as well in Northern Ireland that is still a bit different to England and Wales, certainly. Yeah, it's the same in Scotland. We, we still do examinations in chief and they can be challenging as well because no matter how well you've prepared and, and uh, you know, questioned a witness and taken a statement and so on in advance, I have had witnesses turn completely, you know, 360 degrees when they're in the witness stand because it is quite an intimidating place for them to be. Yes. Yeah. And you ask them a question and suddenly they've completely changed the position. So you've got to, you've got to really think on your feet. And obviously we have a different system in England and Wales yeah. insofar as we share those witness statements um, and exchange those before trial. So you get a sense of what the other side are going to exactly. bring to the, to the courtroom. However, you still need to be in court giving evidence to that statement and being challenged by the other side. And that can be when you know clients do find it very hard to stand up behind their case because it's a very challenging environment. Mm -hmm. And certainly over the years, I've seen some clients really buckle under that pressure and cases can quickly be lost in that circumstance. So we Absolutely. don't go into it with um, anything other than a very clear understanding of the risk of yes. being in the courtroom before a judge and having a barrister on the other side, or indeed a litigant in person, absolutely challenging us and our, on our evidence. Yeah, and I think that's where, although we as lawyers will always be fully prepared in terms of the trial and the documentation available, I think that's where actually from the client point of view, it's also important for the clients mm -hmm. to make sure they really know their own case and that where we're sending documents or information or trial information that that they read it and they really make sure they know it and they're aware of their own case because as you say on cross-examination 
suddenly when a barrister is is questioning you on a very particular point, mm. you need to know the details of your own case as well. And it's part of the skill of litigation that you lead you know, a hostile witness, the witness on the other side, you try and lead them into a bear trap. And there's a way of questioning that we're, we're taught, which takes you there. And so we can see it a mile off, but the witness can't. No. And the number of times I've been sitting with my head in my hands going, I know exactly where this is going and I know what you're going to say and please don't. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's, that's a challenge. What, what we've done in the past is do training for particularly institutional clients, lenders particularly, on witness preparation, how to be a witness in court, what to look out for, mm. that kind of thing. Um, and I think that really helps. Yeah, preparation, mm. preparation, preparation. Absolutely. And that is a challenge because with preparation comes cost. Because yeah. obviously we're involved in that process because quite naturally we need to guide the clients and use the experience that we've gained over the years in that process. And I think sometimes it does benefit a case to have that very mindful preparation before you get to trial if it is going to go that far. And certainly some of the best cases I've enjoyed in my career have been the cases where the client and us, we've worked as a team Absolutely. understanding that need to really get into the detail before you present it into the courtroom. And that's that, that's one of the things I enjoy most about um, my job is that ability to really get into the into the detail with them. Yeah, so they are prepared. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Do you all do your own advocacy, or is that just a Scottish thing? So very early days, I used to do courtroom advocacy, but the cost of doing that, as I've become more senior, counts against it. When you can use the very experienced junior barristers that we have in England and Wales, um, who will travel across the country to the different county courts. Um, and district registries to present cases for us and of course they're doing it day in day out if it's not your day job in so far as present you know presenting to a judge um, I think it does take you a lot longer to prepare a case for hearing and I know Andrew you're a solicitor advocate in Scotland um, which gives you a very different training to me uh, yeah well that, that's partly why I asked the question is because in Scotland pretty much every solicitor will do their own advocacy because there's so many sheriff courts around that you, you'll usually practice in your local court and you'll, you'll turn up and, and do particularly the kind of trials and so on. Yeah, and, and Northern Ireland's a bit of a combination. So solicitor advocates in Northern Ireland don't have higher rights of audience in civil proceedings, only criminals. So it means that most civil practitioners who deal with civil litigation won't be solicitor advocates because we already have rights of audience up to a certain level as solicitors. So we're probably a bit of a combination between Paula, your practices in England and Wales and Andrew's teams um, and myself and my team, we would do some of our advocacy ourselves. So certain types of hearings, we will do it from start to finish. And in terms of other um, commercial matters, we may do applications ourselves, etc. But when it comes down to the trial, it will always be a barrister who then deals with the trials um, because we simply don't have the rights of audience. And then I to deal with the whole. And how, how does the system work in your jurisdictions in relation to barristers? Because certainly in England and Wales, a barrister will lead the trial. They won't have any other colleagues helping them in that environment. But I understand, certainly in Northern Ireland, that you sometimes have a leader and a junior on some cases. Is that right? It depends. On the, I mean, most cases we will have a junior counsel. And when I say junior, that doesn't mean they're inexperienced, but it's anyone other than a QC, essentially. So anyone other um, than the very highest level of barrister. So most cases where it involves a barrister, we will instruct one barrister and they will then deal with that case along with the solicitors from start to finish or from the point of their instruction. One big difference in Northern Ireland between England and Wales and us is that we don't have barristers' chambers. So every barrister is simply independently self-employed. They work alone and you build up your network 
of barristers that you would deal with in terms of particular specialisms and we simply brief them so they work alone essentially and don't have that network that you would see in England and Wales in terms of barristers chambers or clerks who deal with and allocate the work mm-hmm. so it's, it's it's quite a challenge probably for barristers when they first qualify um but yep yeah, so if it's a case that's of sufficient complexity or potentially value where we brief then senior counsel so QCs they would normally have a junior counsel as well then working alongside them and the junior counsel would deal with a lot of the the legal research and, and drafting certain pleadings which means that it's the formalized court documents whether it's skeleton arguments etc they will do a lot of the the ground leg work on it um but the senior barrister will then kind of lead the case and will normally depending on the nature of the case they will though share the advocacy so the senior counsel the qc will do the openings the closings and some of the examinations in chief or cross examinations but the junior barrister will often do some of that cross examination or examination in chief as well so it very much depends on the case but most cases that we deal with would be just one barrister dealing with it as well along with us yeah I mean, it's it's very similar so we, you would only really have a qc in a in very high value uh, matter or or something that was very complex or legally important but um, generally speaking they would have a senior and a junior Um, we call them advocates rather than barristers and kind of similar to Northern Ireland we don't have chambers as such although so they're all part of the faculty of advocates who sit in parliament house and and, uh, have their own libraries and all that sort of stuff but they're then subdivided into what we call stables and each stable usually has a specialism so there's you know there's commercial stables, there's criminal stables and, and so on. So and they will kind of group together as part of that with clerks who kind of dish out the work. So it's it's not dissimilar to the chambers position that you've got in England, but they do all sit under one roof. Should we talk then about law and the difference? Because obviously, yes, in Scotland, we have Scots law. We do. Um, and procedure, mm-hmm. very different to English law and procedure but in Northern Ireland, you have a you have a blend, really, don't you, in terms of your own procedure, yeah. but you're based essentially on laws passed in the Houses of Parliament and where they're varied exactly. by reference Northern Ireland. It's a, it's a combination, really. So I would say our legal procedures, although slightly different, and, and we can talk about it a little bit more, so we don't follow the same court rules. For example, we have our own Northern Irish court rules. But in terms of the procedure itself and how the law is applied, it is very similar to England and Wales. Um, depending on legislation, some of it will be Westminster Parliament granted legislation that applies in Northern Ireland. And we also do have a lot of our own legislation um, and statute that applies in Northern Ireland. So separate to the England and Wales legislation, but much of it, if you read it, will be very, very similar to the main England and Wales acts and maybe a few slight variations for Northern Ireland. So as we've discussed, I mean, Paula, you, me and Andrew all work for a lot of the same clients throughout the whole of the UK and across all three jurisdictions. A lot of the legal advice that will be given to the clients in England and Wales will be the exact same advice that we'll be providing in Northern Ireland with maybe just a few small tweaks to the court process or our um, formal correspondence that's being sent out to the debtors. But other than that, the actual legal advice will be the same. Yeah, and, and Scots law is not massively different. It is, it's got a completely different legal basis, but we end up with a lot of the same answers to the same questions so you know a lot of the the law how you get there might be different but actually the solutions that that the law has arrived at are very similar so you know there's differences in contract law for example but we probably all get to the same place in terms of having a contract in in place um so yeah we we we, sources of law are completely different uh, and we have our own rules and our own court system and everything else which that's probably the bit that people struggle to get their head around more than the, the different law. 
Mm. We've got to my next question, Emily. <laughs> is, you know, how do our clients, do you think, experience running cases? Because the majority of the cases realistically are going to be in England and Wales. Yeah. If they're dealing with volume litigation, they're going to have most of their work here. So then they come across the borders to Scotland and, and Northern Ireland. And, you know, what are they experiencing? Do you think they have frustrations or is there a sort of um, an expectation it's going to be exactly the same because we're part of the UK? Andrew, do you want to? Yeah, I think, I think, think the, about that probably initially there's the expectation that it's going to be the same. And then you kind of explain that the procedure is completely different. I think the two things that are probably different, although I'll be guided by you on this, Paula, is the timescales. Um, in Scotland are, are different in terms of getting an action from start to finish and the costs and the cost regime and what you can claim back uh, are, are also different so those are the two two main things there are obviously strictly procedural differences which is what where we come in so that the client doesn't really have to worry about that what the client wants to know is how long is it going to take to get from here to here and how much is it going to cost and what can I claim back mm. um, and I think those three things are probably different in Scotland from from England but most clients, when you sit down and take them through it, uh, they, they understand. And uh, as long as you, as long as they know what to expect, I think most clients are quite happy to uh, to take it forward. Yeah, I think it's very similar in terms of Northern Ireland and the differences. So, I mean, one of the main differences, for example, is the level of debt that you can claim in each court is different and much lower in Northern Ireland in terms of our small claims levels, our county court levels, and then moving on to high court. So that's something that is quite different. Um, as Andrew said, the procedure is different. And then the cost levels, again, um, are different in Northern Ireland. We would say, in general, they tend to be um, lower than England and Wales. And that's probably one benefit quite often, actually, for some of our clients. If they haven't dealt with cases before in Northern Ireland, or they haven't unfortunately had, or fortunately for them, had debts in Northern Ireland before that they've had to recover. Actually, whenever they go to Northern Ireland, understand the procedure once they've spoken to us, and see that the costs can quite often be significantly lower, it, it can be quite a good incentive to actually sometimes deal with particular debts or, or potential claims um, in a formal legal route if they see they can get a result for sometimes a lower cost. But but certainly, as Andrew said, I think once once our clients understand what the differences are, they don't necessarily have particular frustrations compared to England and Wales because although the processes are different, um, I think each side will always have pros and cons. Everyone will always have their own frustrations probably with each particular system and some things work better for um, a particular client in one um, system rather than another. Absolutely. I agree with that. I think that, that brings us to the close of our first um, podcast episode. Thank you very much. It's been a really interesting discussion at high level, the differences between our um, jurisdictions um, and how we work together. And I look forward to speaking with you on the next episode. Thank you for having us. Thank you.